Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, the podcast where we sit down once a month on the 14th of the month and look at superheroes as they've been translated to film. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler, and the series is released through Bureau 42. This month, we are kicking off an extended look at the X-Men franchise. So we're starting with the year 2000 X-Men film, which is the one we'll be discussing today. And then following that, we'll go through X2, Mutants United, X3, The Last Stand, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Days of Future Past, First Class, and The Wolverine, all in release order. This series will wrap before the release of X-Men Apocalypse, but we will return to that once it's available on DVD and I've had a chance to go through the bonus features and view it multiple times. So this one was a bit of a turning point for Marvel movies on screen. Prior to this, the only Marvel property that had actually made it directly to the big screen as opposed to direct-to-video releases was Howard the Duck. And that's when a lot of people don't even recognize as a superhero property, or at least as a comic book property. Or at the very least, they didn't at the time. Now with the post credit scene in Guardians of the Galaxy, more people are putting it together. In the 1990s, Marvel Comics exploded as did the comics industry because of the speculators market. It was about 50 years after the publication of some of the materials from the late 30s and early 40s, and people were starting to realize that old comics were selling for ridiculous amounts of money. So the collector's market became filled with speculators who were buying things because they thought they'd be able to save them and use them to retire, not realizing that two of the big reasons that comics from the 40s and 30s were worth so much were, one, the scarcity, the books themselves were expected to deteriorate after about 50 years, so most of them would just fall apart on their own if they weren't cared for extremely well. In addition to the ads in the back of the book saying, hey, do your part for the war effort once you've read this, recycle it. So there's very few of them out there. I mean, sure, Action Comics number one sells for one and a half million dollars, but that's because there's 12 copies left of Superman's first appearance. And number two, the other thing they didn't realize was that part of the reason people wanted to read those was because they were significant for continuity. So sure, they were buying new number ones, new character first appearances, character deaths as they hit in the 90s. But if you weren't really familiar with comics narratives, you didn't realize how few new characters stick and how many deaths actually stay dead. They used to say that the only three people who would stay dead were Jason Todd, Uncle Ben Parker, and Bucky Barnes. They don't say that anymore because two of those three have come back from the dead. There's now a version of Gwen Stacy alive and well. There have even been versions of Ben Parker that have survived in comics. So by the time the speculators figured out that, hey, their investments aren't really adding up to all that much, it was too late. The marketing department at various comic companies had grown to depend on them. When they pulled out, the industry almost collapsed, and Marvel actually filed for bankruptcy. It was bought out by Avia Rad, who ran Toy Biz and had the license to produce the Marvel action figures, and his number one goal was to get Marvel Comics on the movie screen. His first success with that was Blade, which opened a lot of doors. We'll talk about Blade in more detail later. Suffice it to say, it wasn't really a blockbuster in terms of making over $100 million, but it did make more money than anyone expected it to make. And Hollywood decided, yeah, maybe people really are ready for superhero films. At this point, 20th Century Fox had already obtained the rights to the X-Men. X-Men and Spider-Man rights were originally purchased by Carolco, and James Cameron was going to start with a Spider-Man film and then move on to the X-Men when Carolco went bankrupt. So Fox obtained the X-Men rights at that time, while Columbia TriStar picked up Spider-Man. So following Blade, this was the first really big superhero film. Not as big as those to come. We'll get to the box office later as we typically do, 
but this is the one that came out on July 14th, 2000, and this was the first widely popular Marvel comics adaptation. It was directed by Brian Singer, who had to be wooed into the part. The studio was actively looking for him, partly because he'd already done Unusual Suspects, which showed he is a very talented director who's got the ability to work well with an ensemble cast. And those are key elements to making the X-Men work. This script went through a lot of drafts with a lot of different team rosters, but it is definitely a team book, and you need a team to make it work and still feel like X-Men. It didn't appeal to him initially. Brian Singer didn't have a lot of respect for the comic books as a medium, and it wasn't until people basically sat him down and said, these are the specific issues we want you to look at. This is the property. Now, Brian Singer is an out-of-the-closet homosexual, so seeing the themes that show up in X-Men, namely that mutants are treated as a minority group that's often discriminated against, that's something that spoke to him. It spoke to his life experiences. He figured this is something that everyone can relate to on one level or another. And that's what finally convinced him to join the project and direct this film. He would end up directing more films in this franchise than anyone else would. So prior to this, he'd only had four directing jobs. There was a short Lion's Den. There was a film called Public Access for 93. In 95, he directed The Usual Suspects. In 98, his version of Apt Pupil, a Stephen King adaptation, was released starring Ian McKellen. And from there, we went to X-Men. Now, we'll talk about what he's done since then. We've already spoken about uh, Superman Returns when we are doing the Silver Screen Superman series, but Brian Singer is currently in production on his fourth X-Men film. As far as the other credits, namely the writing credits, there's a story credit that's shared by producer Tom DeSanto along with Brian Singer himself. They came up with the basic outline for the story, and DeSanto has a few credits. This is his second producer credit, following at Pupil as his first and he's produced other X-Men films. Actually, just X-Men 2 is the next one, followed by, you know, Ringer's Lord of the Fans and producing a lot of the Transformers films, including the as-yet-untitled Transformers 5. So most of his work has been in these big-budget action films. He even has a brief cameo as an actor in this film, playing Toad Cop, as he is credited. Now, the script went through a lot of hands. There was even a draft by Joss Whedon, which has come out with only two of his lines of dialogue still intact. They felt it was a little too pop culture reference a little too funny. It wasn't what they were looking for. And he would later go on to do a 25-issue run of Astonishing X-Men that's generally pretty well regarded. But of all the hands that went into it, David Hayter is the one that gets screen credit as the writer. Chris McCory actually asked for his writing credit to be removed, as he felt that David Hayter's vision was really the one that was in the script, and he had not contributed enough to get credit for it. Now, Hayter has worked as an actor as well, including voice actor in a lot of the Metal Gear Solid games as Solid Snake. He's got a cameo as the museum cop in this one. He's voices of Captain America and Bruce Huntington in the 1990s Spider-Man cartoon. This is his first screenwriter credit, although he's also credited as writers on Scorpion King, Lost in Oz, X-Men 2, Watchmen, and a few more. He's got some upcoming directing projects. So this was early in his career, but he's actually had his hands in a lot of different areas and a lot of different properties. Singer originally reached out to John Williams to score the film, but Williams was unavailable. They ultimately went with Michael Kamen, who's probably best known for his work as a composer on Lethal Weapon, Iron Giant, and Die Hard, in addition to this film, as the top four that he's known for on the IMDb. 
he's got 84 composer credits on the IMDb, most of which come prior to this film rather than after. Only nine of his credits actually follow this film. And he passed away in November 2003 at age 55, which is one of the main reasons that his credits stopped, although six of those eight credits that follow this film actually are posthumous credits as well. We've got Newton Thomas Siegel as the cinematographer, the director of photography for this film. And he's got a few moments that work in. A lot of what he's doing is just setting up angles for CGI rooms. That's where the cinematography really shines, especially with rooms like Cerebro and the areas underneath X-Mansion. This film actually had three editors, one of whom is Steven Rosenblum, 25 editing credits to his name, starting with Wild Thing in 1987. So prior to this, he had Wild Thing, Glory 30-something, Legends of the Fall, Courage Under Fire. This is his only entry in the X-Men franchise. Following this, he went on to Pearl Harbor, Last Samurai, Triple X, State of the Union, Notorious, Get the Gringo After Earth, and a few others. The second credited editor is Kevin Stitt. His editing credits also date back to the 90s. He's got 22 of them. We're looking at Nick of Time, Executive Decision, Breakdown, Conspiracy Theory, Lethal Weapon 4, Payback, Robinson Crusoe, X-Men Falls in the year 2000. After this, he worked on Knight's Tale, Paycheck, Electra, and will soon be showing his work in Jurassic World, following Cloverfield and Jack Reacher. So again, this is his only X-Men editing credit. The third editor is John Wright. He's got 43 credits to his name, dating back to 1973. Some of the highlights of the early part of his career included a lot of TV miniseries, The Hunt for Red October, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, Necessary Roughness, Last Action Hero Speed, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Broken Arrow, Deep Rising, 13th Warrior, Thomas Crown Affair, X-Men. After that, we get to Rollerball, Passion of the Christ, Glory Road, Apocalyptico, Incredible Hulk, Secretariat, Belfast Story, and finally, Heaven is for Real. So again, this is his only X-Men credit, although he did return to superheroes with the Incredible Hulk. Now, a big part of this film is the cast. Casting director was Roger Musenden. He's got 85 casting director credits to his name going back to 1990 with Godfather Part 3. And he's worked on casting with other X-Men films as well. And he is a big force and won't put it all together. Now, there were a couple of actors that Brian Singer was really pushing for. One was Patrick Stewart. As soon as people found out that the X-Men film rights had been sold to Corelco, the fans were getting for Patrick Stewart as Professor X. At the time that the rights were sold to Corelco, Star Trek The Next Generation was still on the air. And that's who fans wanted to see in that chair. So Brian Singer lobbied hard to make sure that Patrick Stewart was able to come in. Now, another one that he was really pushing for was Halle Berry to be involved in the film after seeing her work in introducing Dorothy Dandridge. A lot of people don't like Halle Berry, and they don't know what kind of accent she has. She's got a Kenyan accent. I'm told that she actually did a decent job of a Kenyan accent. I have no way to judge that, and I wonder if that's part of the backlash. She may have nailed the accent in this one. But there was such negative reaction going, what kind of accent is that? Is it just that people didn't recognize the Kenyan accent? I'm not sure. But they ultimately dropped the accent for the sequels. But she is an actress who I think needs a director who's willing to push her. A lot of her movies that she's been in, such as Catwoman, which you've discussed already in the Batman series, are simply not very good, nor is her performance in them. But you get to the, you're introducing Dorothy Dandridge or your Monster's Ball and these movies where the director doesn't want her there because they just see her as a pretty face and don't want just a pretty face, and they push her and push her. And the director of Monsters Ball has openly admitted he was trying to push her to the point that she would quit and he'd be able to get someone who was more of an actress. And Halle Berry 
rose to that challenge and ultimately won the Oscar for it. So she is a capable actress who doesn't seem to have great instincts and needs to be pushed to get that kind of performance out. But they did do it. Now, the third name that Singer successfully lobbied for was Sir Ian McKellen as Magneto. And he'd worked with McKellen already in App Pupil. He knew that McKellen was also a homosexual who would respond to the themes in this film and was able to successfully get him in on that point. At one point, Singer even managed to rearrange the shooting schedule because McKellen was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings and really wanted to do it, but would not have been able to do both with the original shooting schedule. And Singer managed to get things shifted around so that McKellen could do that. So we, I guess, apparently have Brian Singer to thank for McKellen being cast, ultimately, as Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings films. The fourth name that Brian Singer was really lobbying hard for did not work out successfully. Singer really wanted Russell Crowe to play Wolverine. Crowe ultimately turned it down because he felt that it would be a little too similar to his role from Gladiator, and that they were both warriors whose symbol was the wolf. Apparently, Wolverines are not well known in Australia, because both Russell Crowe and the friend Russell Crowe recommended, Hugh Jackman, thought that Wolverine was a reference to wolves rather than Wolverines, which are rather nasty and large badgers, found almost exclusively in Canada and some parts of the United States. It took a while before they landed on Hugh Jackman. They did open casting, went through a lot of people. They ultimately casted Doug Ray Scott, who was the villain in Mission Impossible 2. Now, Scott broke his collarbone during filming a Mission Impossible 2, which extended that shoot by six weeks, which meant he would not have been able to do it with the scheduling conflicts to start X-Men and finish Mission Impossible 2, which is why they had to recast the role after shooting had begun. So when the first day of filming began, they didn't have a Wolverine in this film. They did ultimately get Hugh Jackman. Now, Hugh Jackman is essentially a household name, but has been since this film. If we go back through his filmography, he's got 50 credits to his name. Prior to this one, he was in a TV series called The Law of the Land, a TV series called Corelli, Blue Healers, Snowy River, The McGregor Saga, Halifax FP, Paperback Hero, Erskineville Kings, and Oklahoma as Curly in a TV movie, a lot of which seem to be Australian. So as far as the North American audiences and studios were concerned, he was a very unknown quantity. Since then, he's been able to get into someone like you, Swordfish, Kate and Leopold, all the X-Men films, Standing Room Only, Making the Grade, Van Helsing, Scoop, The Fountain, The Prestige, Flushed Away, Happy Feet, Deception, Australia, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, Real Steel, Rise of the Guardians. He's got quite a few films. Now, one of the things I really liked about Hugh Jackman, he does play this part well. He's got the demeanor, he's got the presence. If anything, he's just a little too tall for the part. Prior to this, Wolverine was consistently drawn as five foot three in the comics. He was designed to be short. And Hugh Jackman is six foot two. Well, there was a comic convention a few years after this began, and Hugh Jackman was there on the 20th Century Fox panel promoting the X-Men, and he found out that Len Wein was a guest as a comic creator somewhere at this panel or at this convention. Len Wein is the writer who wrote The Incredible Hulk 180 and 181, which introduced the world to Wolverine. He would go on to write Giant Size X-Men number one that put Wolverine on the X-Men team. When Hugh Jackman found out he was there, he had people go out, track Len Wein down, and if he was available, it turns out he was, bring him onto the Fox stage, where Jackman introduced himself as Hugh Jackman, he plays Wolverine, thank you for my career, I'm sorry I'm so tall. This is how he first introduced himself to Len Wein. He just seems to really appreciate what Wolverine has done for him, and 
he values the role, values the character, really enjoys it. And he seems like a decent human being. There's not a lot of people who would not only track down the creators of the characters and know them offhand when they're promoting the film, but actually make sure that they get a chance to come up on stage and get credit that is due to them. And that's something that Hugh Jackman did. So finding out about that, I have a lot more respect for him as a person now. It seems like he's not one of the stars who's letting the ego get to him. It's not just, well, of course I made it this big. That was always destiny. He seems to be going, no, I had that stroke of luck. I had that lightning in the bottle and you were a big part of that. Thank you for it. So I do really like that about Hugh Jackman. And in this, they, that's one of the areas where they deviate from the comics a bit. X-Men had almost 100 issues under their belt, over 60 of which were original stories and just over 30 of which were reprint issues by the time Wolverine joined the team. He wasn't one of the entry characters, one of the founding members. He is the point of view character in this film. Now, some of the other stars that we have in here are Famke Janssen, whose IMDb credits say that she's best known for the X-Men franchise and her work in GoldenEye, which is probably true. Prior to this, she first appeared in Fathers and Sons. She guest starred as Kamala in the episode of Star Trek Next Generation titled The Perfect Mate. Her first comic book adaptation was a TV movie called Model by Day. But prior to this, it is definitely safe to say that GoldenEye was her best-known role. Following this, she was also in Ally McBeal, I Spy, Turn the River, Nip Tuck, and she came very close to being in Men in Black 2. I think a lot of the issues that they had with Men in Black 2 were that she had been cast as the villain, and then the aunt who virtually raised her passed away, and she had to go back to Amsterdam as executor and deal not only with her own grief, but with her aunt's estate. So she had to pull out of Men in Black 2 at the last possible minute, and it was recast after some of the visual effects had been moved forward. So they ultimately dropped some character-motivating scenes from that film to stick with action sequences. I think that's part of the reason that film did not really work the way it should have. But again, that's not part of Funko Janssen's fault or anything. It's just, I, I think that film should have been better and probably would have been better had the circumstances been different. But Famke Janssen is in here as Marvel Girl. In the comics, the founding X-Men were Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Beast, and Angel, with Professor X sort of being the field commander who's commanding them from the mansion. Now, of those six, only four of those characters make it into the finished product here. Angel was in a number of people's scripts, but they couldn't get the wings right. Beast was also in a few scripts, but they were concerned about the makeup for the Harry Blue version. In the Joss Whedon version, they had him break his leg to limit his time on screen to try and make that work and still have the founding X-Men there. Ultimately, both of those characters appear for the first time in X3, The Last Stand, which we will get to in a few months' time. So while Beast, who is sort of the team scientist, was taken off the table, they assigned his medical background and scientific background to Marvel Girl, which is part of the reason it took a couple movies for Beast to show up. Which is something I liked, because in the comics, Marvel Girl was very clearly the token female that everyone was sort of, you know, in love with, and she was only interested in Cyclops, aka Scott Summers. But yeah, it didn't wasn't really requited. So without the romantic entanglements, there was really nothing left to Marvel Girl's character for the first hundred or so issues of the title. Now, Cyclops is the love interest in the comics as well as in the movies. He was played by James Marsden, who's got 66 acting credits going back to some TV movies and TV episodes in 1993. So he's had, you know, quick appearances in Saved by the Bell, The New Class, The Nanny, Party of Five, Touched by an Angel, The Outer Limits. So a lot of bit parts in big shows. 
This was probably his breakout role as Cyclops in here, a.k.a. Scott Summers. For those who are wondering, yes, Scott Summers is the inspiration in the namesake for Buffy Summers in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Joss Whedon is a big X-Men fan. Following this, he was also in Sugar and Spice, Zoolander, 13 episodes of Ally McBeal, several of the X-Men sequels, Enchanted, Hairspray, 27 Dresses, Death at a Funeral, Superman Returns, 30 Rock, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, even returns in X-Men Days of Future Past. Now, Cyclops is my all-time favorite X-Book character. He's one of my favorite Marvel and comic book characters in general. I wasn't really pleased with the way they handled it. They brought Wolverine in as the entry point character and the viewpoint character for the fans, which makes sense because he's, by and large, the most popular X-Man character out there. He also, in the comics, did have that love triangle going with Jean Grey, so Wolverine was interested in Jean Grey, although Jean Grey didn't really express any interest in Wolverine. But using that to the degree that they did without first establishing Cyclops and showing why he was a good team leader just made Cyclops a little more adversarial. One of the few lines that Joss Whedon has from his script that survived to the finished product was when Cyclops is asking Wolverine, prove it's really you, Wolverine says, you're a dick. And Cyclops accepts that. That's out of the Joss Whedon script. And the way Cyclops is treated here, he is a dick. He can have some of that in the comics, but I think in the comics they do a better job of establishing that Cyclops is a very good tactician who looks at the big picture. And yeah, he might do things that hurt himself or his friends on a personal level if they're better for mutants in general. That's really the way he works. And he is the de facto leader who doesn't see why. One of the great things about Cyclops is he doesn't understand why Aaron keeps looking to him for leadership. So it doesn't go to his head. He doesn't get bloated. He does what he thinks he needs to do because that's the role that the people around him are pushed him into. Here we don't see that. It gets a little bit better in X2. And we'll talk about how all that plays out when we get to X3, the last stand. The other major character is the other one that's introduced to the team during the course of this film, and that's Anna Paquin as Rogue. Now, Paquin had already won an Oscar for her work in The Piano, and she was one of the youngest to win an Oscar. She was nine years old when that was filmed, and she won the Oscar for it. She was also a voice in Castle in the Sky prior to that. She'd been in Jane Eyre, Fly Away Home, Amistad, She's All That, Walk on the Moon. So she was very much established by the time X-Men came out. She followed this into almost famous Finding Forrester, X-Men 2, Steam Boy, X3 The Last Stand, Trick or Treat, Scream 4, X-Men Days of Future Past, and is probably best known these days for her work as Sookie in True Blood. Now this rogue is a little bit different. In the comics, Rogue was originally raised by Mystique and was one of Mystique's effective minions until she accidentally absorbed the powers, memories, and personalities of Miss Marvel in a permanent way. Carol Danvers is coming to the screen later, but she is not owned by Fox, so Fox could not tell any of that part of the story in X-Men. So we don't see that absorption of a hero's persona that puts her on the path to becoming a hero instead of a villain, which is what turned the corner for the character in the comics. Instead, she's really just a lost teenager who becomes a hero because she's taken in by the heroes early on. Some of her origin is intact, including what happens with her first kiss and the powers manifesting and that sort of thing. But this rogue is largely a different character than the comic book rogue. Even the southern accent and that southern bell history is something that was effectively stolen from Carol Danvers and not something that was intrinsic to the character. Now we do have our large cast of characters here. Tyler Main plays Sabretooth. Now Main is probably best known for his work in sports entertainment. 
we'll call it, as a wrestler. So he comes in when they need big people. And while I will say he has the look of Sabretooth down, he looked great. I wasn't really happy with the way the character was written. Now, Tyler Mean played the character on page actually a lot better than I expected. As wrestlers turned actors go, he did a better job than most do, although he had a pretty light character to work with. So I would be open to see him in other acting roles following this one, and he's had a few, but just in movies I haven't felt the need to watch. So he was in an episode of Monk, but I haven't seen him in episodes of Chopper or the horror movies that he's been in before and since. Now, the Sabretooth in the comics also has the healing factor that Wolverine has. The savagery of his fights are fairly accurate, but the rest is not. I mean, we're talking about a guy who has quite literally quoted Shakespeare in battle, and that's not the Sabretooth we see here. There's also a bit of a running mystery about his biological connection to Wolverine. For a while there, he was saying that he actually was Wolverine's father. Now, that's no longer the case in the comics. We've got Wolverine Origin, which came out shortly before this, that finally told Wolverine's origin story. Some people are not happy with the Wolverine origin story as it was told by that series. Marvel just figured, these are coming to the big screen. We need to tell the story before someone else does. So that's when they wrote Origin. Now, Ray Park was cast as Toad. Toad was quite literally a little toady, who was Magneto's toady, sort of at his side, very much a brown noser. In the comics, he's a short hunchback who's almost toad-shaped and toad-proportioned, who's been there almost since the beginning as one of the founding members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Early on, he does seem to be inspired by Caliban from Shakespeare's Tempest. Now, by the time this movie came out, he was easily best known for his role as Darth Maul in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. He'd also been in Dead Mule Suitcase and Mortal Kombat Annihilation as Baraka, and a few others. He is effectively an acrobat and an athlete who was able to parlay that into an action film career. Following this, he's been in Ballistic X vs. Seaver, Slayer, Fanboys, G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, As Snake Eyes, Hero Slow Burn. He was also in Heroes the Regular TV series. He was in Nikita, G.I. Joe Retaliation. And he's got Mortal Kombat 10 Generations TV series coming up as well. So again, this is a case where Toad, as he appears on screen, is not the character as he was written in the comics, but the actor portrayed the character in the script well. So there's nothing wrong with Ray Park's depiction here. I mean, he's not the one who suddenly decided that Toad has this very long CGI tongue, which did not exist in the comics prior to this, nor did his ability to spit that smothering goop appear in the comics. Toad in the comics was agile and able to jump, and he was just, as I said, a little toady. Now, Mystique is fairly well represented here. She first appeared in the comics when Magneto was off the table. She started the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and was the leader of it, as opposed to being Magneto's sort of right-hand woman and second-in-command. She's played by Rebecca Romaine Stamos, who prior to this has been known best for her work as a model, but this was certainly not her first acting job. She'd been in Just Shoot Me, Jack and Jill, Friends. After this, she would go on to Rollerball, Femme Fatale, Simone, a couple of the X-Men sequels, the Tron 2.0 video game as one of the voices. She was in The Punisher, which we'll also discuss with Thomas Jane, Ugly Betty, Eastwick. So she's got a number of credits to her name. Now, her makeup for Mystique is a little bit different. The Mystique in the comics, like most shape changers, is technically nude the whole time. Otherwise, her clothes would not transform with her. But she does give the appearance of having clothes more so than the film version does. And the makeup that they had was, you know, based a lot with food coloring. There were a number of self-adhesive prosthetics. And Rebecca Romaine's diet was extremely limited. 
when they were filming this because if she changed her body chemistry too much, then the makeup would come off. She spent most of her time in isolation because they didn't want to reveal the makeup to the world because they did make some alterations to how Mystique looks from the comics. Sort of the beveling and the the texture of her skin did not appear in the comics. She was just blue skin to begin with and has been rumored to be the mother of Nightcrawler who was also in early drafts of the script, but removed and eventually shows up in X-Men 2. So once again, we've got someone playing the part who's not necessarily known for acting ability, who did a fair job in the role as written. Now, Bruce Davison is one of the first people who was cast in this movie, period. And he was cast as Senator Kelly, who is a character straight from the comics, who is sort of a stand-in for the McCarthyism and the McCarthy era. And the senator trying to push legislation that would segregate mutants just as McCarthy was trying to segregate the potential communists. Now, as an actor, he's got 218 credits. He is best known for his work in the X-Men franchise, but also Harry and the Hendersons and Shortcuts, according to the IMDb. His credits go back to 1969. So this may have been his most prominent role. He's got a lot of roles in things like the VTV series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Murder, She Wrote. So he seems to be a character actor who stepped in. He was George Henderson in the Harry and the Hendersons TV series, taking over the role that John Lithgow started in the film. He'd also appeared in Star Trek Voyager, in The Outer Limits, in Seinfeld, in Touched by an Angel, Chicago Hope, The Practice. So we're looking at a guy who's got a lot of credits and is recognizable, but not necessarily a household name. And his character was actually a pretty fair representation of who we have in the comics. His assistant, who's there for a few seconds, we found out he'd been killed by Mystique before the film even began and was replaced by Mystique. Henry Peter Gyrich is also a major comic book character who worked a lot with both the X-Men and the Avengers as a government liaison. He's got 21 acting credits to his name, including this X-Men, Saving Private Ryan, Cypher, and In Love and War. Now, Sumila Kay is in here as a bit of a cameo character playing Shadowcat. She's the girl who passes through walls. Shadowcat appears in three of the X-Men films and will be recast each time until the fourth film where she's finally played twice by Ellen Page. Prior to this, she'd been in Can't Wait, Simon Birch, The City. Following this, she was in Doc, History of Violence. So she got a few small roles in big productions. Now, Sean Ashmore is probably best known for his work in this as Iceman. Now, he does have a twin brother. So a lot of people will also say that he was... You know, he did play Eric Summers in Smallville. His twin had a different role in Smallville. Both he and his twin are actors. Sean Ashmore has 54 credits to his name. He plays the founding X-Men Iceman, who was the youngest member of the team when it first started, but not quite as young as he's represented here. So he's only a year or two younger than Cyclops, Beast, Angel, and Marvel Girl, as opposed to being a student while they're teachers, as they are in this film. His acting credits go back to 1989, but his most prominent role prior to this was probably Animorphs. And following this, he was on In a Heartbeat, the Outer Limits TV series, as I said, Smallville, X-Men sequels. So he's the original Bobby Drake, and he is something of a love interest for Rogue in this film, as opposed to Gambit in the comics. Now, Katrina Florence is also in here, the girl with the large hoop earrings in the classroom scene. That's Jubilee, or Jubilation Lee. I mention her mostly as her comic book character, finally having a cameo in the films. This is her only acting credit. Similarly, Alex Burton has a cameo as Pyro. This is his sole acting credit. That role would be recast when Pyro really steps up to be a more prominent character in X2. And the final actor that should be mentioned is none other than Stan Lee, who appears in his first silver screen cameo appearance. 
Now, he had been a cameo already as one of the jurors in Trial of the Incredible Hulk, but this is the first time we see him on the big screen and not just the TV screen. He is the hot dog vendor at the beach when Bruce Davison comes out of the water. Now, this is prior to Guardians of the Galaxy. At the time, Stan Lee was only doing cameos in films based on characters he created. So even though he only created some of the characters or co-created some of the characters in this film, he did co-create the concept of the X-Men themselves. So he wrote X-Men number one and a few issues after that before passing the torch on to Roy Thomas. Jack Kirby was the artist. So the characters that he explicitly co-created were Professor X, Cyclops, Iceman, Marvel Girl in this film. The other characters, so your Storms, your Wolverines, they were more Len Wein, Dave Cockrum, and some other later characters. Jubilee was considerably later. Rogue was later. So those were the ones that Stanley brought in, including the villains of Toad and Magneto, although they were represented very differently here. So in the edit of this film, it was finally released at the 1 hour and 44 minute runtime, and that was done to keep it under the 1 hour 45 minute mark, as some of the multiplexes in the day would allow one more screening if you're below that size, or below that length. I do strongly recommend watching this on DVD or Blu-ray and checking out the deleted scenes. Some of those should not have been deleted in my opinion, particularly the scene in the bedroom when Wolverine and Marvel Girl are talking. As Wolverine and Jean Grey's conversation goes in the film, he asks her to read his mind, she thinks that he's hitting on her and she flatly rejects him, and then does it anyway. In the deleted scenes, there's an extended part of the conversation where he opens up enough that she realizes he's got memories locked in there and he's hoping that she can help him draw them out. And that's why she changes her mind and ultimately does it. So this is one of those films where I think you need to check out the deleted scenes and they probably should have been in the film. It was released in a branching edition on DVD to try and work that in. Unfortunately, it wasn't a smooth edit. It wasn't really a director's cut. They would go from that scene, cut to the alternate deleted scene, and then cut back to the film. So you'd see some moments multiple times and there was pauses as it was shifting back and forth. It wasn't the ideal situation. If you also have one of the original releases of the DVD, that was before Columbia TriStar secured the rights to all live-action versions of Spider-Man. There is an Easter egg. I forget whether it's found by highlighting the dog tags or the rose in one of the, the menus, but there's a cameo bit filmed right before the cast broke for lunch when they were brushing out and looking up at the Statue of Liberty at the climax of the film. We see a few of the X-Men there and then... Shortly following, there's a guy dressed as Spider-Man who comes in and joins the group. And it's actually Famke Janssen who first notices the extra body and turns to look. And he just says, oh, sorry, wrong movie completely, and apologizes and leaves. That was actually Brian Singer's plan. Fox can no longer include that Easter egg since the Spider-Man rights are held by a different company. So if you've got X-Men 1.5 or later, that little cameo does not appear on the releases. So you've got to go back to the very first release to see that scene. So the essential plot synopsis here is that, you know, the X-Men are being, they are being ostracized. The mutants in general are being treated as weapons in schools. And it is, as I said, an allegory for any segregated minority section of the population. So, you know, whether it's homosexuality as it is for a member, or a number of the crew members, at the time there's a lot of people saying, well, they're relating it to gamers from Columbine, at least in the online circles I was a part of. It wasn't really meant to be any specific group of people. They were just keeping the allegory and the metaphor general enough to be any segregated group of people. And they ultimately moved the release up from November of the year 2000 to July. So it came out on July 14th, and the gross for this one was fairly high. As we said, a general rule of thumb is that we need the domestic box office to be two to three times the total budget for a movie to be considered profitable. 
and Fox tried to keep the budget as low as they could on this one. $75 million was a fairly small budget for a summer tentpole. They'd seen that Blade overperformed, but Blade's budget was significantly smaller and it didn't take as much money to make a profit. They weren't sure that this would do the same thing. Because some people were saying, oh, it's big because it's the superhero, and Fox was also going, yeah, but that's also a vampire movie, and it's the first Wesley Snipes movie in a while. We don't know which of those elements is what really helped bolster that box office. But they were willing to take a risk. So with an estimated budget of $75 million, we're looking at 150 to $225 million before the film was profitable. The domestic gross by that November was $157,299,717. So domestically, it over-doubled it. And that's just the U.S. It brought in almost 15 million pounds in the U.K. Worldwide adjusted total came in at about 296,339,527 dollars. So the worldwide total is pretty darn close to four times the initial budget of the film. So this one did make money, which explains why the franchise is still going strong these days. That's not even counting the home video releases. So in this movie, it, it's the X-Men mutants in general are being segregated as a minority group, and Magneto has a plan to use technology to turn world leaders into mutants to sort of force them into the minority group so that they would write laws accordingly. And one of the things that they got right was Magneto's backstory as a World War II survivor. You know, he was a young boy in World War II, ended up in the concentration camps. He's a little bit older now, but it makes him a very sympathetic villain. You understand why he does not want to go through what he's already been through, and he doesn't want to see these laws pass again. So they did a really good job of representing that. Using the technology to turn everyone into mutants, to me, feels a lot like a Silver Age comic book plot, as opposed to the more mature comic book plots that have come out since then. As I mentioned, some of the characters were not accurately represented. As someone who's read a lot of X-Men comics, I look at this and say, this is an enjoyable action movie. It's not necessarily a great adaptation. So there's a lot of this to enjoy, but I think the more familiar you are with the X-Men comics, the less satisfied you're going to be with the finished product here. Now, that's not going to be true of all films in the franchise. Some are better, some are worse, and that's something that we're going to be talking about later. So to that end, please join us again next month when we discuss X2, X-Men United. Thank you for listening.